Um, we, I'm going back to old school. I've, technology catches up with you, and I've been in the habit of putting my talks and all the read, Bible reading verses on a slide and flicking through with my phone, which is all very handy, but I'm going back to the old ways tonight. So you may need to grab a Bible if you want to follow along. Let me pray. Father, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for the promise of life that we have in him. Help us as we look at this passage from Matthew 28 to see the wonder of his resurrection from the dead and to partner ourselves in that. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Jesus was crucified, nailed to a cross. And he hang, hung there until his body, weakened by lashes and beatings and exhaustion, gave way to death. He was executed as a criminal. He was amongst the lowest of the low. Yes, he was followed and loved by many, but he died in suffering and shame. Perhaps the greatest shame, however, was that not that inflicted on his body by men, but the suffering of the Son of God bearing the weight of our guilt and our shame and our sin upon himself. He was forsaken by his father and died. He, was, he faced judgment to save a rebellious humanity. On the day of his crucifixion, which we read in Matthew 27, verse 45, from noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came over all the land. About three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lima sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. He died around three o'clock in the afternoon with great pain and suffering and shame. There was another humiliation in the Old Testament, in Deuteronomy, in the law. If a man is guilty of a capital offence and is put to death and his body is hung on a tree, you must not leave his body on the tree overnight. Be sure to bury him that same day because anyone who is hung on a tree is under God's curse. You must not desecrate the land the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. So there is Jesus dying on a tree under the curse of God. And we better get his body down before night falls. It's three o'clock already. It's dark now. It's equinox. It's Easter. I was working on my talk at three o'clock this afternoon and it's already dark now. This has just gone very echoey. And it's Friday, and tomorrow is Saturday, and Saturday is the Sabbath day, and you don't do any work on the Sabbath. And this man's under a curse. We've got to get him buried. Now, though he was executed as a criminal, he still had those who valued him and sought to treat his body with respect, but they had to move fast. One of Jesus' disciples almost roped into being involved in his crucifixion, was Joseph of Arimathea, a wealthy man of position and influence. And he took a great risk. He decided that he would align himself with this purported enemy of the Roman Empire and the Jewish people, this man accused of treason. And so in chapter 27, 56, 57, 
As evening approached, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who was himself become a disciple of Jesus. Going to Pilate, the Roman governor, he asked for Jesus' body, and Pilate ordered that it be given to him. Joseph took the body, wrapped it in a clean linen cloth, and placed it in his own tomb that he had cut out of the rock. He rolled a big stone in front of the entrance of the tomb and went away, and Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were sitting there opposite the tomb. Joseph ensured that Jesus, though executed as a criminal, was buried with nobility, so much did he value Jesus. He spent the time to make sure that his body was wrapped in clean linen, although his body would have been brutally beaten and bloody. And he placed him in a new tomb which had been hewn out of the rock. Joseph's tomb, the one that he invested in himself, the one that would have taken a bit of money and effort, A, for the real estate, and B, for the hewing. A large stone is rolled in front of the tomb. The job is finished. Joseph goes home. The two Marys, they stay a bit longer, but they went home too. It's Friday night, and it's dark, and it's cold. We have a cold body on a cold rock. Jesus' body in a tomb, dead. Not partly dead, with perhaps a flicker of life, a weak pulse, no dead, dead, no pulse, no breath, no heat. Just a hastily prepared body that had been beaten and scourged and bloody from the top of his head from a crown of thorns to the bottom of his feet which had been nailed through, lying stone cold lifeless, wrapped in linen. A criminal in a noble man's tomb, who would have thought? Shut in by a large stone to keep out, to keep the smell of the rotting body well concealed and to keep grave robbers out. It's Friday night and it's dark and it's cold. Up in Jerusalem, up at around a thousand metres. Friday night passes. The next day is Saturday. It's the Sabbath day, the day of rest. For some, it's a day of profound grief for a few. For others, it's a day of victory. Actually, it's a day of nervousness. You may know that feeling. You've done something you know is wrong, but you've seen it through. But satisfaction is somehow elusive. You're still concerned to cover your tracks. To, to make sure that your scheme doesn't unravel. Yes, the job's finished. And Jesus was a miracle worker. He had many people who followed him. He cast merchants out of the temple, endangering their lucrative income. He had enemies. He rode into Jerusalem on a donkey colt and was received as the Messiah King. He opposed these people who killed him to their face. He said, you are whitewashed tombs, all sparkly on the inside and dead on the outside, but dead on the inside. Ah, but they weren't whitewashed tombs. Now, who's in the tomb now? The enemy is dead. The game is done. He's finished. We have won. The battle is ours. And so they enjoy their victory with this restless nervousness. There is no rest for the wicked. 
Well, at least this movement, all this madness that's been going on, these people who follow him, they've been stopped in their tracks. Well, you know, sometimes you just can't be too sure. So just in case, we'd better finish the job off. Where are the religious leaders? Where are the pious Jews? Where are the law keepers on the Sabbath day of rest where we are called to express our trust and confidence in the living God? Where are they? Well, just in case, rather than trusting God for what we've done righteous, we'll better go and see the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate, just to make sure our plan doesn't backfire. Verse 62, the next day, the one after the preparation day, the chief priests, oh, such religious, wonderful men, and the Pharisees, on the Sabbath, went to Pilate. You're supposed to be resting, boys. You're supposed to be trusting God. Sir, they said, we remember that while he was still alive, this deceiver said, after three days I will rise again. So give the order for the tomb to be made secure until the third day. Otherwise his disciples may come and steal the body and tell the people that he's been raised from the dead. And now this last deception, that's going to be worse than the first. All right, said Pilate, take a guard, go and make the tomb as secure as you know how. So they went and made the tomb secure by putting a seal on the stone and posting the guard. Well, Pilate's a bit of sympathetic. After all, his hands are hardly clean in this matter. Just in case. They went and made the tomb secure by putting a seal on the tomb and posting a guard. I wonder what the guards thought. It's a little bit spooky, isn't it, to be guarding a tomb? Particularly one with a fresh body inside. But then again, would you, be rather in the, would you rather be out there guarding a tomb or back in the fortress guarding criminals? Or maybe your 275th day standing guard outside Pilate's residence. Would you rather be doing that or sitting around, standing around in a peaceful garden watching over a stone-covered entrance that's sealed? An executed criminal's tomb. As long as it doesn't rain, I think it'd probably be a pleasant change from standing over Pilate's house or watching criminals. Certainly low risk. I mean, there's nothing going to happen out here, right? The soldiers go to the tomb. They place the seal around the entrance. You have to think, how secure is this body? Like, you know, we're going to the nth degree, aren't we? 24 hours in a cold, dark tomb. The body is wrapped in linen clothes, cloths. The tomb has been shut with a large stone. It took many people to put that stone in place. And then it's sealed with the imperial seal to, to prove to everybody the seal this tomb has not been tampered with. And then there's an imperial guard carrying the best of military technology of the day, Standing guard through the long hours of the night. Saturday night rolls around and that body ain't going nowhere. It begins to get a bit chilly as the dew starts to fall. The soldier's metabolism slows down as the night wears on, but they stand around sharing jokes, 
talking about family, talking about the events of the past week, commenting on how ridiculous this particular job is, wishing they were back in the barracks asleep. And you know how it is, secretly hoping that nothing spooky happens, but not talking about that. Sunday morning. It's been an uneventful night. Their minds are a bit groggy. Their bodies are cold. It won't be long now till the next watch comes. They're going to put another watch on. This is stupid. Go back to the barracks and have a night, have a, have a day, a restless day's sleep. Oh, let's change characters. That's what the guards are doing. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Joseph, they followed Jesus all the way from Galilee. They cared for his needs. They watched him as he died from a distance. They continued to follow their dead Lord, even as his body was prepared and placed in the tomb. They sat outside that tomb, the last to leave. And I bet their Saturday was an absolute ripper overwhelmed with grief and confusion. This man changed our lives. When we gave our lives to him, we've cared for him. And he was a beautiful man. And I don't get this because he's dead. And we've seen what he's done for people. We've seen his authority. And we know he's dead because we were there. So they plan to pay a final tribute to their Lord by anointing his body with spices. So Sunday morning, whilst the guards are sluggishly waiting the night out for the sun to rise, they get up early and go to the markets, which are now open after the Sabbath, to purchase spices. It's very early in the morning and they're walking to the garden tomb where Jesus' body is entombed, where they were two days ago, two nights ago. The sun's about to rise. I frequently, on a normal week, four or five times a week, take our dog for a walk. I leave it at 5.30 or thereabouts. And it's most of the year dark. And the sun comes up. It's very quiet. And as the light begins to dawn, I hear the kookaburras start up and the magpies and the parrots and... Maybe a possum, you think, what's that noise? A possum jumps through a tree. In the stillness, I walk down through Pennant Hills Park. It's dark, there are a few lights on. I do feel isolated and vulnerable. Me and Moogie, he's going to protect me, I'm okay. I wonder how I'd feel, we go through this sort of, we go down past the hockey fields and there's this sort of this canopy of trees along the road that I walk through. How would I feel instead of an archery field at the end if there was a cemetery or a tomb at the end? Why am I doing this and it's dark early in the morning? Here are the women walking to the garden cemetery early on Sunday morning, returning to the tomb of their dead master. This noble tomb, they are still grieving. They're feeling vulnerable, but they're compelled by love. They want to honour him. They want to, you know how it is when people die somehow make contact, somehow feel. It's just past the next rise. They're feeling uneasy, they're afraid, they're uncertain and they're so confused. But we're going to do this because we loved him. I so loved him. They have a problem. How are they going to move the stone? Two women, they don't know if they can, but they're going to try. 
they had bigger problems than the stone. There's Roman soldiers guard posted, posted guard. They don't know about that. There's a seal, an imperial seal on the tomb. They don't know about that. They're not getting that tomb open. They're not embalming that body. They're about to be dealt another blow. Chapter 28. After the Sabbath at dawn on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. There was a violent earthquake for an angel. The Lord came down from heaven and going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothes were as white as snow. The guards were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. Glorious surprise, unimaginable shock. There is an angel. And our friends, the Roman guards, what a night. Just about ready to set back to the barracks for a good night, for a good day's sleep. After a cushy night's work, are so afraid they shook and became like dead men. Now, do you blame them? Because there's been a transformation. And the women, well, what's keeping them now from anointing Jesus' body? The stone's rolled away. The seal has been turned to dust. The guards whom they should fear are themselves petrified with fear and shaking white as ghosts. And sitting on the stone almost nonchalantly is an angel of dazzling white. What's keeping them from anointing Jesus' body now? All the barriers have been broken down. Well, there's something keeping them from anointing the body. The body's not there. The tomb is empty. Throughout this scene, God is bearing testimony. God is saying, as Matthew describes this, Jesus has risen from the dead and I want you to know about it. I want you all to know that he's risen from the dead. Be in no doubt. Why was the stone rolled away from the tomb? Have you ever thought about that? Did the stone have to be removed for Jesus to come forth from the tomb? He who conquered death, he who raised the dead, he who stilled the storm and turned water to wine, could he not remove that stone with just a word? Did he need help? And in fact, in his resurrected body, Jesus could have passed straight through that tomb wall for he locked doors when he appeared to his disciples were no hindrance to him. There was a, a new functionality about this resurrection body. Why should a stone seal keep him in the tomb? Can you imagine Jesus being raised to new life early that Sunday morning and it's dark and it's, get me out of here, somebody open the door. door. That wasn't going to happen. Why was the stone rolled away? The stone was rolled away to testify. The stone was not removed for Jesus, but for the women. Not so that Jesus could go out, but so the women could see in. Verse 6. The angel said, He is not here. He has risen just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. The seal was broken, the stone rolled away to testify to the reality that Jesus had risen from the dead 
And God wanted these women to know without doubt that their Lord was no longer swallowed by the grave. He was alive, death was defeated. So let me ask another question. Why did God send an angel? Wouldn't a violent earthquake be sufficient to move the stone? Couldn't the resurrected Jesus have instructed the stone just to roll? Well, angels are messengers. They tell forth God's message. There haven't been any angels in Matthew's gospel since Jesus' birth, the angel appearing to Joseph and Mary. And now we have at Jesus' resurrection, God again sending an angel to do what? To testify. The angel's fundamentally there not to move the stone, not even to scare the guards but, or to amaze the woman, but to say, to testify, Jesus has risen from the dead. He is not here. Come and see the place where he lay. And then he gives them these instructions. Then go quickly and tell his disciples he has risen from the dead and is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Now I have told you. The angel says, go and testify. Speak about what you have seen. It's exactly what Uncle Nath was saying last week. Go and testify. Say what you've seen. Tell the disciples Jesus has risen from the dead. So the women go. Their mourning's absolutely turned upside down. Their hope is restored. Jesus is still their master and Lord. And the darkness is gone and now the sun is up. It's a new day. The Son of God has risen from the dead. And verse 8. So the women hurried away from the tomb, afraid, yet filled with joy and ran to tell his disciples. The new day has only just begun. But there's another surprise in store. Suddenly, Jesus met them. Greetings, he said. They came to him, clasped his feet and worshipped him. And then Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. There they will see me. They knew it was true. They knew Jesus was alive. They knew that he'd defeated death and they bowed his feet and worship him as the risen Lord, as Messiah. They understand. And Jesus says, now go and testify. Go and tell my brothers, your brothers. Go and tell them I am alive. This whole story reveals this God of the Bible who delights in reversals. The bruised and bloody body that perished on Friday is raised to powerful, new, new life on Sunday morning. A new type of life. The conspirators who take one final step to ensure their deadly scheme is successful face their worst nightmare. And it's not the disciples. It's God, the God they say they follow and serve, who raises Jesus. The Jesus movement is not eliminated but ignited into an unquenchable fire that will transform and upturn Jerusalem and Judea, the entire Roman Empire, indeed the entire world. The complacent guards, so pow such powerful agents of an all-powerful empire, are transformed into ashen-faced mutes shaking in fear. The tomb, guarded and sealed and dark and secure, is smashed open with light in a moment. 
The faithful women weighed down with grief and confusion and despair leave the tomb overflowing with hope and joy and they meet their risen, resurrected Lord and they bow down and worship. It's all about reversals. The God who delights in reversals, who takes people who are lost and hopeless and weighed down by despair and sin and complexity and mess and he gives them new life. He takes dead people who are dead to the things of God, who are spiritually bankrupt with no future but the grave and he puts in them resurrection life. He transforms people whose lives are a mess, who reflect a broken and world in broken and twisted relationships. He takes people from trapped in substance abuse and pride and greed and deceit. He takes people like Uncle Nate who grew up with a mother who didn't love him and no father in housing commission and nobody in society loved him or accepted him and he transforms them into agents of grace. He indwells them by his Holy Spirit and makes them new. Jesus has brought great reversals into so many lives and he still does. And still can do if you will receive him and accept him and follow him as the resurrected Lord. I think many of us know the power of those reversals already of his resurrection life. And that's why we come to celebrate today. To I think in some sense fall at his feet and worship. And if that is where you are, well I think you stand where the women stand. Jesus says, go and testify of what you've seen. Go and bear witness. Jesus appeared to many, many others and they had the same commitment to go and testify and they did. And the message grew and those who followed Jesus grew and trusted in the resurrection grew and grew and grew. And they said, Jesus has risen from the dead and so can you rise and have new life. What a wonderful message. Sins forgiven, life eternal, hope beyond the grave because we trust in Jesus and we testify about Jesus, the risen Lord. The stone's been rolled away. Let's see if I can do better than Nathan. He is risen. risen. I didn't do better than Nathan, but that was good. Thank you, everybody. Amen.